I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The Supreme Court recently decided not to enjoin the enforcement of a Texas law, which allows private citizens to sue those who perform, aid, or abet abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. On today's episode, we will explore what makes Texas's law unusual, the legal theories that give rise to it, why the Supreme Court uh, has refused to intervene, and how this might impact the future of Roe v. Wade. I'm joined by two of America's leading constitutional scholars and the two people in America who are best able to shed light on this question and help all of us understand it. Sarah Isger is a staff writer for The Dispatch and host of the legal podcast, Advisory Opinions. She's also a political contributor to ABC News. Sarah, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. And Kate Shaw is professor of law and co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy. She recently edited the book, Reproductive Rights and Justice Stories, and is a co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny, as well as a contributor to ABC News. Kate, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Sarah, the roots of this law come from, of all places, a law review article. It was published in 2018. Uh, It's by Jonathan F. Mitchell, and it is called The Writ of Erasure Fallacy. Tell us about this law review article, what the legal theory is, and why it makes this Texas law so hard on procedural grounds to enjoin. So... Pro-life advocates have been passing state laws for years now. We've seen other states pass these so-called heartbeat bills, which is similar to the one in Texas uh, in terms of its effect. We've seen 15-week bans. We've seen uh, the cases that have gone up to the Supreme Court recently, um, restrictions on which providers can uh, perform abortions or on 24-hour waiting periods, parental consent, uh, different types of restrictions. What happens in those cases is, by and large, they have been enjoined pre-enforcement, as in before the law goes into effect, there it's litigated of whether they violate uh, current Supreme Court precedent, Casey, Roe, uh, Hellerstadt, June Medical, these cases that we're all now very familiar with. Um, and the law never goes into effect in most of these cases. So Jonathan Mitchell was the solicitor general in Texas uh, several years ago. After leaving, he wrote this law review article called The Writ of Erasure Fallacy. And his whole point was courts shouldn't be getting rid of laws before they go into effect. Um, And what if the law, for instance, the changes, you know, what if they overturn Roe this year or something. And so abortion has been illegal for 50 years and found unconstitutional, but then it becomes legal again. What do we do about all the people who performed abortions for those 50 years? So he comes up with these ideas for how a state legislature could fix that problem. Some of them deal with statutes of limitations and things like that. But he has one paragraph towards the end where he said, The legislature can also induce compliance with its statutes by providing for private enforcement through civil lawsuits and key TAM relator actions. That's the money line of this whole law review article. And the Texas state legislature, who I'm sure had that flag for them, uh, took off running because what Jonathan Mitchell uh, found here was a way around the pre-enforcement litigation. 
because there was no one to sue. So in the Texas laws, you said uh, anyone in the state of Texas, there's 29 million people, anyone except for a state official can sue someone who they believe provided an abortion after there was cardiac activity. Uh, and the question for the, uh, health, the, the women's health centers and the doctors who perform these procedures in a pre-enforcement action, they would normally sue the governor or the state attorney general, maybe a district attorney, the person who is going to bring a criminal case against them or a civil case. But in this case, who do they sue for that pre-enforcement? All 29 million Texans? And what then happened uh, was that Jonathan Mitchell's Law Review article kind of came true. And the Supreme Court said, we're not sure who you're supposed to sue either. We would need more briefing on this. In the meantime, we will not prevent this law from going into effect. And that's what has caused the explosion and why we're all here today. Thank you so much for that great and clear introduction. Kate, we just heard a phrase, key TAM uh, suits, which not all of us uh, will be familiar with. And to understand that, we also have to dig into some uh, less familiar uh, landmarks of civil procedure law including uh, the 11th Amendment, which the Supreme Court has interpreted to ban not only citizens of another state, but citizens of their own state from uh, suing a state, and the ex parte Young case. So this is complicated stuff. Walk us through it and help us understand it. Uh, sure thing, Jeff. So to start with key TAM actions, um, so this is a type of action that is familiar in federal law that basically empowers private parties to stand in the feet of the federal government and to bring suits challenging things like waste, fraud, and abuse inside the federal government. So these are settled actions, a familiar part of our law, and some have drawn analogies between what Texas has done here and these key TAM actions, which are basically a way for the federal government to outsource a degree of its kind of anti-corruption and law enforcement work to interested private parties who have, you know, a financial incentive because they get to keep part of whatever recovery they obtain if, in fact, they're successful. So, um, I think it's a stretch to suggest that what Texas has done here just builds on this key TAM action precedent, but that at least is what a key TAM action is. Um, you know, the, the the outsourcing to a private party of something is is a similar attribute of a key TAM uh, suit and the suits here. Um, but I think that's essentially where the similarity ends, right? What Texas has basically done here, and as Sarah said, it has passed a ban and other states have passed bans, and those bans are typically enforced by state officials. But I, I do think it's important to, to, to make clear that this isn't just, you know, the creation of a new civil action. It's a ban. The law says it is not permitted. It is prohibited to perform an abortion in the state of Texas. It's just that the way that prohibition is enforced is by private parties rather than state officials. So individuals, and I have to say, I'm not sure with Sarah that it's just Texans who can bring these lawsuits. Any person is permitted. That's the language of the statute. And if we take text seriously, I'm not sure a New Yorker is unable to initiate a suit if they think there's been an abortion performed in Texas. Now, I think that act has to be in Texas, at least the performance of the abortion. 
But I'm not sure the plaintiff has to be in Texas. I actually think we're talking about hundreds of millions of potential plaintiffs. So disgruntled exes, anti-abortion activists, strangers, people just looking to make a buck, they can sue anyone who performs an abortion in violation of this law or who aids or abets or intends to aid or abet a violation of this law. And if they are successful, they can get a minimum of $10,000 in damages and attorney's fees. So this is a bounty system in which private parties are authorized and actually incentivized to sue and to sue, and this is an important divergence from a key TAM action, to sue individuals participating in the exercise of a constitutional right, which is to decide whether to continue or terminate a pregnancy. Now, women, we should say, the people who secure abortions are carved out so they can't be defendants under this law, at least if they are getting abortions in you know, like a you know clinical setting. I'm not sure the law is perfectly clear about things like self-administered abortions, um, but certainly the law by its terms applies to those who provide or assist in the securing of abortions. Um, but anyway, individuals are incentivized to participate in these actions that are predicated on individuals participating in constitutionally protected activity. To my knowledge, there has never been a law that is anything like this. Um, and in terms of Ex parte Young, which you asked about, Jeff, um, so, so the reason that this law has so far evaded any kind of judicial review is you know, precisely because of the kind of design that Sarah described and we've been talking about, you know, it's not enforced by state officials. So typically, um, the Supreme Court has interpreted the 11th Amendment to say that states themselves can't be sued. But in a 1908 case, ex parte young, the Supreme Court held that state officials, um, where they were enforcing um, laws that were allegedly unconstitutional, could be sued in their official capacities for prospective injunctive relief. Um, so the idea is you're suing these state officials as opposed to suing the state. And so that's permissible. It's not a violation of the 11th Amendment. Um, and the court has said that, look, when you're doing this analysis as to whether you can sue a state official under Ex parte Young without you know, running afoul of the 11th Amendment, uh, you have to take a look at how closely connected the state official is to the enforcement of the law and then decide. Here, this is, I think, an important procedural step that we just haven't been talking about enough. The district court actually carefully went through the arguments that the defendant sued here, and that was a class of state judges, a class of state clerks, and a bunch of other state officials, in addition to a private individual who's not subject to any 11th Amendment or ex parte young analysis, that they actually were subject to suit. Although the district court said, look, Supreme Court and Fifth Circuit precedent doesn't squarely answer the question, but the suit should be allowed to proceed. There was a preliminary injunction hearing scheduled on the substantive merits of this Texas law, and the Fifth Circuit put that proceeding on hold, which is why the plaintiffs went immediately to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court refused to intervene. But we should say the only court to have looked at the merits of the question of whether these defendants could be sued under the 11th Amendment and Ex parte Young concluded that yes, they could. Sarah, in refusing to issue a stay, uh, the, the Supreme Court in its uh, one paragraph unsigned opinion said the following about the procedural questions. I'm going to read it and, and ask you to unpack it so, so we understand what the justices were saying. Uh, it says their application uh, presents complex and novel antecedent procedural questions on which they have not carried their burden. For example, federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws, not the laws themselves, and it's unclear whether the named defendants in this lawsuit can or will seek to enforce the Texas law against the applicants in a manner that might permit our in intervention the citation is to a case called Clapper versus Amnesty International, which says threatened injury must be certainly impending. And then the court goes on to say, 
uh, the state has represented that neither it nor its executive employees possess the authority to enforce the Texas law either directly or indirectly, nor is it clear whether under existing precedents, this court can issue an injunction against state judges asked to decide a lawsuit under Texas's law, CX parte young. Help us unpack that. What does is, what is the court say? <laughs> so as Kate said, they sued a series of, for instance, state judges. And so you had a couple problems with this. Unlike uh, a prosecutor, an attorney general, or a governor, the theory being that they are the ones executing the law. You know, they are the power over the police, the police powers to decide which laws to, to prioritize, things like that. A judge in this case, their only role is to have two civil litigants before them and to have the power of the state to run that judicial proceeding. And the question is, is that state enforcement of this law? Um, and under Ex parte Young, the case that Kate was talking about, does the federal government have power to tell a state judge that they can't enforce a state law in that manner. It's actually a really interesting question of law here and a really nerdy one and one that probably your podcast listeners uh, are only willing to spend so much time contemplating the arguments on each side. The reason, of course, uh, that we're all talking about this has nothing to do with Ex parte Young. No one would care if this were about anything else. But as Kate said, what makes this law so incredibly unique uh, is there's never been an attempt like this to use this civil litigation side, this bounty hunting idea to restrict a constitutional right. And so there is certainly an argument and one that the district court found persuasive that yes, a state judge uh, is a state actor in that courtroom. They are the ones uh, overseeing the trial. They would be the one entering the judgment, the $10,000 judgment, for instance, and it would in some sense be the power of the courts enforcing that judgment. Um, and the district court, at least, thought that was enough, that you could therefore enjoin a state judge from being able to oversee these cases. And if there's no one to bring your case to, then the law is DOA, and that would have been that. Uh, the Supreme Court, though, in their opinion, what they were saying was, we enjoin laws, not people. You've got to have the right person here. We've had 72 hours to look at this. We don't have full briefing on it. This is coming up through an emergency posture, not the Supreme Court's normal term, which runs from October to June usually. Uh, they've had a series of emergency cases this summer, which is also important to remember, right? These are humans too. They've had the eviction moratorium that came up. They had the uh, remain in Mexico policy that came up through emergency posture. And then they had this all in a three-week period. So once a week, they were being asked to decide these emergency cases on very short order with very limited briefing. And Supreme Court justices are used to having months, if not years with their briefs, they then decide whether to take the case with a whole set of briefs. They then get a whole nother set of briefs. They then hear arguments. Sometimes there's even additional briefings. Sometimes they hear the arguments again, even. Uh, and then they sit and ponder for another two, four, six, nine months writing opinions and concurrences and dissents. That's how Supreme Court justices like to decide cases. And so what the five justices said is, no, we're not sure you sued the right person here. And we want to take our time deciding the implications of saying that a state judge can be stopped from hearing a civil case that involves state law. Now, 
what the dissents interestingly said, and I, I definitely want to hear Kate's opinion. Um, I really read them to say, we're not sure either, but um, we should stay at just from a status quo perspective, keep the status quo in place as we find out who you can actually enjoin, rather than anyone really disagreeing that they were sure you could enjoin the state judge, which is interesting because, again, I think when you hear about this in the press right now, it's sort of like the five justices uh, said no, the four justices said yes, and that's just the way it went, when in fact, it was a lot more nuanced than that and what the justices were actually disagreeing about. They might have only been disagreeing about the standard for a stay pending briefing. Thank you very much for that. Yes, indeed, Kate, um, eager for your thoughts about the arguments of the dissenters. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, these questions are particularly difficult, including, for example, whether the exception to sovereign immunity recognized in Ex parte Young should extend to state court judges in circumstances like this. Uh, Justice Breyer, however, said that he thought that it should prove possible to apply procedures adequate to providing a remedy for uh, the violation of the Constitution here perhaps by permitting lawsuits against a subset of delegates, say those particularly likely to exercise the delegated powers, or perhaps by permitting lawsuits against officials whose actions are necessary to implement the state's enforcement powers. Help us understand the arguments of the dissenters. Sure. And if I could just take a step back for one second, which is Sarah's, of course, right that for the most part, the court's decision making happens in a much more leisurely fashion than we have seen both in this dispute before the court and in a number of recent disputes, right? The court gets briefs, it hears oral arguments, it deliberates, long opinions are drafted, dissents, concurrences back and forth, and then the public gets, you know, the output, the written opinion. But increasingly, the court has been doing really important decision making, including in big contentious constitutional issues on what is known as the shadow docket, these cases that arise on a highly expedited basis. Um, and I think that what has been so difficult for many people about the court's uh, initial silence and then decision in this Texas case is what it what appears to be real inconsistency in the court's willingness to act expeditiously when certain constitutional rights claims are brought before it versus others. So the court, for example, um, has issued just in the last year since Amy Coney Barrett joined the court 20 injunctions altering the status quo. It is willing to do that. The court has issued seven emergency injunctions blocking state coronavirus restrictions. These are all stats compiled by Steve Vladek at Texas, who really is the expert on the court's shadow docket, although the term itself was coined by another law professor, Will Bode. Um, but some of those cases, in particular the COVID cases, absolutely presented complex and novel antecedent procedural questions, as the court claimed this Texas law did. So the New York COVID law that the Supreme Court enjoined on the shadow docket in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn had expired by the time the court decided the case, but they nonetheless invalidated these capacity limits with this per curiam opinion that reasoned that, look, even in a pandemic, the Constitution cannot be put away and forgotten. The restrictions at issue here, by effectively barring many from attending religious services, strike at the very heart of the First Amendment's guarantee of religious liberty. Certainly, the restrictions at issue in Texas strike at the very heart of the constitutionally protected right to abortion. And it's hard to come away with any conclusion, but that the hostility of a member of, of a majority of members of the current Supreme Court to the constitutional abortion right is was driving the court in its, again, initial non-decision and then decision not to block this Texas law. And I think that, to, just to repeat the point I made about the district court, I do think that sort of what this 
the status quo is, is kind of an important question here. So what the dissenters, and I'll get to the written dissenting opinions in just a minute, um, but the court did not act the night before the law went into effect, right? So it went into effect at midnight on September 1st. We were all expecting some decision out of the court in the, you know, 10, 11, 12, you know, 11, 11, 30 hours, and the court was silent. And so the law did go into effect and most abortions in the state of Texas shut down just after midnight. Um, And the court then acted about 24 hours later to confirm what it had already done through its silence and omission, which is allow the Texas law to take effect. But I think that the delay actually was kind of an important one. And, te- and Sarah's right. These justices are mortal. Like it is hard to do this kind of important decision making on a short timeline. But A, they do it in other cases. And B, I think that actually the gap here might have mattered because what because it allowed the court to say, we're not, you know, we're simply not messing with the status quo, the law is already in effect, where they would have appeared at least more responsible for allowing the law to go into effect, even if it was through a decision not in joining the law had they acted the night before. So I actually think symbolically, it mattered quite a bit that there was that 24 hour delay, although it seems kind of trivial, um, you know, in the abstract. To the question about the dissents, I mean, I think that Sarah is right. None, None of the opinions really say anything definitively about this open question about whether, and it's not that you can't ever, a federal court can't ever enjoin a state court judge. There have been injunctions against state court judges. It's just that this is a novel law. And so the role of these state judges in just, you know, docketing cases and ultimately awarding relief if there, you know, is a suit brought under these, uh, under this law is just a kind of judicial act that hasn't been before the court in one of these cases previously, nor I should say, though, I, you know, the district court's reasoning here finding that these judges could be sued seemed persuasive to me. There were also some statements by uh, the chief judge who was the name defendant on behalf of a class of, of state judges. Um, basically announcing he was responsible for enforcing the Texas law. Now, I don't think that's dispositive, but I think it matters, and the district court mentioned it. Um, so I think that the, the the dissenters were essentially making the point, and they each made a slightly different point, that um, these were novel, important questions to be resolved. But either way, the court was going to make a decision about what the state of the world would be in Texas while these novel decisions played out. And the decision the court made was that it was going to allow the functional unavailability of most legal abortion in the second most populous state in the country for some undefined amount of time. I mean, in particular, because the Fifth Circuit still hasn't lifted the stay that it issued. So the federal litigation you know, in which this district court opinion occurred still has not proceeded. So you know, I think the court missed an opportunity, as I think did the chief justice in his dissent, to basically say to the Fifth Circuit, you know, you got to let this proceed in the ordinary course. We're not going to simply allow the, you know, kind of the evasion of judicial review to proceed indefinitely. Um, but I think that, that, you know, the dissenters, each of them, you know, took a slightly different position. But I think it's right that none purported to definitively resolve this question of whether you could sue these defendants, um, but wanted to put the law on hold so that that could be worked out in, you know, the ordinary course. Thank you so much for that. Sarah, you've both mentioned the shadow docket. And on a recent episode of your podcast, Advisory Opinions, uh, you joined your colleague David French and Will Baud, who coined the phrase shadow docket in discussing the implications of the shadow docket for the disposition of this Texas case. Uh, t- tell us your conclusions and whether you agree with Kate that the conservative justices are treating abortion cases differently than they treat other cases on the shadow docket or not. 
Well, we've also coined a term on my podcast called abortion distortion. And the idea that, uh, yes, when it comes to certain issues that come before the Supreme Court, they have this distorting effect. Uh, weirdly, drugs have a distorting effect as well. We can go on a whole different line of cases uh, where drug use seems to fall outside the norm of a bunch of other precedents. Uh, so, yes, I understand Kate's point about the the possible abortion distortion here. But as you said, let's back up and talk about the shadow docket. So there's the normal course where opinions are issued on cases where they've heard oral argument or had a significant briefing, cert granted. And then there are these uh, shadow docket cases where they're coming through orders instead. So someone's asking for an emergency order to stay something and join something. Um, I would consider the death penalty cases to often fall under that. I don't know if Kate does as well. Uh, And the court ends up in these weird positions where each case is a unique little snowflake uh, when you dive into it. But then if you back up, as she pointed out that Steve Vladek did with all these stats, they look all over the place. Some things get stays, some things don't. Sometimes the status quo matters. Sometimes the injunction's only on the likelihood that you're going to succeed when the merits do come before the court. And so, um, you know, to quote Clueless, uh, it's like a Monet. It's it's a whole mess when you get up close to it. Um, This is where Kagan, for the first time, by the way, a Supreme Court justice used the term shadow docket in her dissent. Justice Breyer beat her using it in public just a few days earlier in his interview with the New York Times. But she was the first one to use it in an official Supreme Court, you know, documented stamp thing. And she was complaining about this, that they have too much coming up through the shadow docket. It's too important. These opinions, if you want to call them that, are getting released, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, often on a Friday, by the way, which doesn't make it look great either. This one was not. Um, And that it was a problem. Here's the issue, though, that I have with Justice Kagan's dissent on that. Okay, what did you want to happen here instead? Because if you get rid of the shadow docket, meaning the Supreme Court just doesn't hear emergency things, then what would have happened in this case was that the Fifth Circuit's delay that Kate was talking about would have just continued. So in fact, it's not that Justice Kagan was objecting to the shadow docket. She was objecting to this stay not issuing under the shadow docket and perhaps the inconsistency over the course of shadow docket uh, jurisprudence. You know, they, the Supreme Court, as I said, is um, often using a standard where you need to show that you would likely prevail down the road in order for them to issue this stay. And I think what would have been actually a more helpful dissent coming from Justice Kagan, and what I think she was trying to get at, but it's not there, is that the stay standard should simply be different on the shadow docket, and it should be about preserving the status quo, and therefore they can all sit there and argue over what the status quo is. Sometimes it's more obvious than others, for sure. Um, but that that should actually be a bigger part of the standard that they walk through and that that would make the shadow docket far less controversial because basically the Supreme Court would say, um, is there any chance that this is an interesting question of law? If so, we'll put it on our docket. We'll have the stay to keep the status quo in the meantime. And now you go to the back of the line and we're going to hear your briefs. We're going to get your oral argument and we're going to issue an opinion a year from now. Interestingly, Just this week, the Supreme Court did exactly that in a death penalty case. Now, obviously, the status quo in a death penalty case is much easier to ascertain. The status quo is that the person is alive. Um, But it was a religious liberty question of who you could have in the room during the execution. 
the state of Texas, yep, also a Texas case, had uh, basically said, you can have someone in the room, but they have to be silent. They can't even breathe through their mouth, basically. Uh, And they certainly can't touch you, lay hands on you, as this case was about. And the Supreme Court uh, said, nope, you're not going to execute this guy tonight. We want full briefing. We're putting this in our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, And in the meantime, everyone go back to your corners. That's, I think, what Justice Kagan's dissent wanted. But again, because they had such a limited amount of time to even write these dissents, I don't think she was fully able to uh, elucidate that point in a way that I think would have been more helpful to understand what she was getting at in criticizing the shadow docket. Thank you for that. Thank you for calling uh, We the People listeners' attention to that uh, powerful and important death penalty case where an inmate asks for a pastor to be not only in his presence, but touching his hands or feet at the moment of death. And as you said, the court uh, has uh, put the execution on hold as it decides what to do. Uh, Kate, what do you make of Sarah's uh, accusation against Justice Kagan, uh, who said, and I'll quote from Justice Kagan's language, the majority's decision is emblematic of too much of this court's shadow docket decision-making, which every day becomes more unreasoned inconsistent and impossible to defend. Uh, what, what do you think Justice Kagan was uh, arguing for and what would a better approach to the shadow docket look like? Yeah, I mean, I do think inconsistent is the key term here, right? I think that it, that, that Sarah's right. She's upset here about the court's failure to intercede. And, you know, you could argue, well, that's hypocritical. If there's too much, if the court is abusing the shadow docket, then how could she possibly be upset if the court's not interceding in this case? But I think the point is this inconsistency. So in, you know, in death penalty cases, for example, right? So the court, the court did block this execution just last night. Um, but also in the last six months of the Trump administration, in the summer and the fall of 2020, the federal government proceeded on um, really a spree of federal executions. And the court, I think the number is in seven of 13 cases, the court intervened to allow those executions to proceed. Um, Overturning lower court findings to do that, including, you know, vacating an injunction against the use of a particular lethal injection drug So again, it does feel as though the court doesn't give us a lot of guidance about why, in particular, when we're talking about these life or death cases, it sometimes intercedes and sometimes doesn't. One through line seems to be religious liberty claims, although not all religious liberty claims are more likely to get a receptive audience when we're talking about the death penalty shadow docket. I I agree with Sarah. I think the death penalty cases do qualify as part of the shadow docket. and not in other kinds of cases, even where lower courts have written reasoned opinions finding meritorious, these claims by death row inmates, the court has in a number of cases overturned, sometimes in unreasoned orders, those findings. So I think that that's the kind of inconsistency. I don't think Justice Kagan is at all suggesting that the court can or should avoid sometimes making decisions on an expedited basis, but where upsetting the status quo, sometimes, you know, issuing decisions that will have irreparable effects in some way. I mean, if we're talking about an execution, that's obviously the ultimate kind of irreparable harm, but also allowing the taking effect of an abortion ban that will functionally eliminate the possibility of terminating a pregnancy for many, many women for whom, even if the law is enjoined in the relatively near term, they will have missed the opportunity to obtain a legal abortion under Texas law, potentially at their at great physical, emotional, other kinds of risk to themselves and their families. Um, and so, you know, I do think that the court should 
one needs to explain itself better. Two does need to think differently about and explain differently how it is valuing kind of harm um, in the balance. And I also think there's, you know, there's this disconnect in terms of the kind of votes required to do certain things on the court. Um, uh, you know, there are clearly four votes in this case to take this. If this was a cert petition, the four dissenters would have the votes to take the case up. Um, now, it's a peculiar thing to figure out, but it takes five votes to issue a stay and so or to issue an injunction. And so this, the you know, the four dissenters did not have the votes to actually block the Texas law, although they could have taken it up, uh, you know, if a cert petition were filed in the ordinary course. Now, they could still, you know, grant cert in this case relatively quickly, but I'm not sure they can grant cert before judgment if no substantive opinion has been issued even by the district court. They could bypass the Fifth Circuit and and, and, and take the case up that way. Um, but I, I'm not sure they could they could grant cert right now, although in, you know, in some ways I guess they can they can do whatever they want. Um, but I think that, you know, that might have been an option, sort of something analogous to uh, what the court did with this death penalty case that Sarah was talking about. Um, the court has before it this case challenging Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. Is there a world in which they could have actually just taken this case up, let the Texas law stay on hold while they considered its constitutionality potentially alongside the Mississippi case? Again, it would have been a deviation from their ordinary procedures to do that without any district court opinion. Um, but but I but the sort of disconnect, the distance between four and five with respect to doing certain things on the Supreme Court, I think, is also a real problem that creates this impression that the court is acting in inconsistent ways, that it is preferencing and disfavoring certain kinds of rights claims, um, and that sort of the shadow docket makes all of that crystal clear. And I think all of that is what Kagan was saying in her you know, very short uh, dissent about the shadow docket. Thank you so much for that. Sarah, what do you think of Kate's assessment of the shadow docket? And then tell us, what are the implications of Jonathan Mitchell's legal theory for other controversial areas going forward, as, as you both explained it so well, Mitchell's theory allows uh, the legislature to provide for private enforcement actions through these civil lawsuits after a federal district court has forbidden the executive from enforcing it. So it basically, during the period where uh, a, a district court might uh, reach one conclusion about the Constitution, until the Supreme Court definitively resolves the question, you can have these private lawsuits. And that's why in cases not only like abortion, but also perhaps the Second Amendment or religious liberty, it would seem that this theory would allow for states to deny citizens the Supreme Court's current uh, interpretation of the scope of constitutional rights, basically waiting for the court to overturn that decision and reach a more uh, conservative conclusion. Uh, have I got that right? And, and might this theory sweep more broadly in, in those other kinds of cases? So first, I just want to like, yeah, girl, the consistency point that Kate made, um, because th this was something that stuck in my craw, I guess. In the original back and forth over the eviction moratorium, the one that happened in June before the Biden administration extended it, that went to the Supreme Court also on the shadow docket. And uh, there were only four votes to block the continuation of the eviction moratorium. Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately, and what he said was, I do think that the CDC went beyond its legal authority in doing this, which would have made him a fifth vote, but he says, I am not going to be a fifth vote because uh, there's only a few weeks left, the orderly wind down is more important, you know, let's just chill out for a little while. And yet, in a very similar posture, with a very similar question in some respects, that's not what we saw in the per curiam. It's unsigned. We do not know who wrote it, uh, though people have 
hypotheses. Um, in this abortion case, imagine how differently this would have hit the public whether you're a woman in Texas or a reporter covering this, if the per curiam opinion had said the exact same thing. Look, I think that Texas wildly passed an unconstitutional law here. There's no question that it is an undue burden under our Supreme Court precedent and that they're trying to be super cute by coming up with this uh, ex parte young problem. However, there is an ex parte young problem and therefore uh, we do not want to have the precedent of enjoining the wrong party. So we're not going to do that. But make no mistake, this law is unconstitutional, which is what he said, what Justice Kavanaugh said in the eviction moratorium case. But instead, what the majority said was, uh, we're not saying one way or the other anything about the constitutionality. We're not commenting on the constitutionality. And I think that inconsistency understandably rubbed people especially, uh, you know, abortion advocates really the wrong way, because to them, not only was it inconsistent, but it signaled maybe where the justices, five justices at least, are going on the Dobbs case, the one that Kate referred to, which is uh, Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion. Now, there's a whole question of how this case will affect the Supreme Court's view of the Dobbs case in that 15 weeks. Does a six-week ban all of a sudden make 15 weeks look really reasonable? Uh, the pro-life advocates in that case are arguing for more of an international law concept, something conservatives have thus far been allergic to. And when I say allergic, I mean hives all over their bodies when you mention international law. And yet it's the conservatives who are, uh, you know, pointing to Europe and standards of, you know, norms for humanity. Um, so anyway, they're all looking back at this per curiam opinion saying, wait a second. In the eviction moratorium, you were willing to say that it was unlawful, just obviously, but that you weren't going to stay it. But in this context, you're not willing to stay it, but you're also not even willing to say it's unlawful. That's an inconsistency that I think is pretty one for one and perhaps speaks to the abortion distortion that we kind of started with. Um, now, to the second part of your question, um, yes, can other states do this? The answer, at least for the time being, is yes, although I certainly hope that the courts will work out this ex parte young problem and it will apply then forthwith to all the future ones. But let me give you two examples. One, we certainly know that there are other states that have passed previous heartbeat bills, uh, more abortion restrictions that have been struck down. that are like, oh, aha, now we know how to do it. Great. We'll do that next time. Thanks. Uh, but then there's this hypothetical that we actually have not heard states considering, but that certainly could be out there. You know, there is a gun case pending at the Supreme Court also. It will get argued in November before the abortion case. It involves New York having a gun restriction that uh, many legal scholars say violates the Second Amendment. Could New York, if that law gets struck down, say, oh, right, our bad. We were trying to do it through state action. Cool. We'll just do it through bounty hunting instead. Great idea, Texas. Thanks for that. Uh, and I think that's an interesting question that perhaps Jonathan Mitchell in his law review article did not fully contemplate how if you can do it for one constitutional right, you can do it for another. Uh, I'm curious, you know, Kate mentioned the other death penalty cases, even on religious liberty that have been inconsistent in terms of the stays issued. She didn't actually give the example that I find also pretty inconsistent there's a very, very similar case. I believe it came out of Arkansas. She may remember um, where it was an Amman that 
the prisoner wanted in the death penalty chamber. The Supreme Court did not stay that one. This is very similar, except it's a a pastor from Second Baptist in Corpus Christi. That looks pretty inconsistent. Imagine that New York had read Jonathan Mitchell's article first, had created their new bounty hunting gun law, which is sort of a weird bounty hunting, but also it's guns, uh, law first, and that had gone up on the stay posture. One wonders without the abortion distortion, or maybe with the gun distortion, depending on your view, um, whether the votes, would they have been flipped? Like, would everyone have been a hypocrite on it? Or just some of the justices? Like, that's the sort of hypothetical that, like, I, after a couple glasses of wine, like, sit there and really contemplate in my head, in my super nerdiness. Uh, We, the people listeners, are with you every step of the way. Kate, uh, what do you think of uh, Sarah's hypothetical of the New York bounty hunting law? Do you think Mitchell's article might be invoked by liberal and conservative states essentially to try to thwart the court during the months before the justices might reach a decision in the other direction? And, and what are the broader implications of this uh, difficult but uh, but significant procedural uh, debate we've been having? Yeah, and just the, the the case involving the Muslim inmate that Sarah referenced, Dunn versus Ray, 2019, right? I think it is hard um, not to see just blatant inconsistency between the Supreme Court 5-4, right, refusing to allow the presence of an imam for a death row inmate um, and what the court did just yesterday. Now, I do think after Dunn versus Ray, the court actually got pretty explosive blowback from across the ideological spectrum. Um, it just, you know, the, the lower courts had found for this inmate and the Supreme Court interceded to allow him to be executed without the presence of a spiritual advisor. And it was just pretty appalling, I think, for people of all stripes. And the court actually reached a different decision with respect to an inmate, actually not a Christian inmate in that case, but a Buddhist inmate seeking the presence of a spiritual advisor and without really explaining the difference, sided with the inmate very soon after Dunn versus Ray. Um, so I, anyway, I actually just think that's an important example. Sometimes the Supreme Court's shadow docket activity can generate public blowback. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that the court's sort of two-step and one-day delay in deciding this case blunted that kind of blowback in a way that I'm not sure if it was calculating or intentional on the part of the court. Although I do feel like Sotomayor signals a couple of times in her dissent that the delay was not on her and the per curiam opinion is like a paragraph long. So I, I'm not sure. It's hard to know what that delay was about, um, but that's a little bit of sort of, sort of a sidebar. Um, to the point of kind of- Also copy- keeps me up at night with my wine. What caused the delay? I know that someday we'll have Jan Crawford or someone telling us, but in the meantime, I'm dying to know. (laughs) I do think Sotomayor sends a a couple of signals in her dissent, but it's not her. Um, So in in terms of the, you know, the possibility of copycat laws, certainly I do think there'll be more laws like this, um, you know, on the issue of abortion specifically, unless and until the Supreme Court actually resolves this case. Um, And, you know, I, I don't, I, it is hard for me to see in part because sort of the Second Amendment's politics are different from sort of abortion politics. It is very hard for me to see like a blue state doing with respect to gun rights, what Texas has done with respect to abortion rights here. Um, but I think that it is right that, and this is part of what Robert seems to be signaling in his dissent, it's not, there's nothing formally, legally limiting 
a state's ability to do this with respect to any constitutional right. And I think that trying to sort of play forward what the court would do in such a case just underscores how obviously and flagrantly inconsistently the court is acting to underprotect the constitutional right to abortion, which it clearly is hostile to, at least a majority of it. And it may well be you know, very close to overturning or at least dramatically scaling back any constitutional right to abortion. But right now on existing precedent, the Texas law and everyone in Texas and everywhere else agrees with this. There's not any dispute about the flagrant unconstitutionality of the Texas law, but the court has not been willing to protect that constitutional right among all others. I mean, I think the gun right, the gun example is a useful one. I mean, I think about, you know, a state, say a blue state, I also think this is far-fetched, but a blue state saying something like, look, we think that abortion rights are under attack and we think that that's a real threat to women's liberty and autonomy. And so we are going to prohibit you know, any public statements in support of restrictive abortion laws or sort of any public voicing of pro-life sentiments in the state of New York. But we're not going to, you know, enforce it ourselves. We'll just let private parties sue anybody who takes a public pro-life position in a court in New York. The idea that the court would let that stand under the First Amendment is preposterous. And I think it underscores how obviously inconsistently the court is acting. And I think that is also, it's not just the inconsistency in in, in, in terms of insufficient explanation, um, but it is just it, it is clearly the privileging of certain constitutional rights at the expense of others. Um, and I think that the court has signaled pretty clearly that abortion is a disfavored constitutional right. And, you know, we're likely to see something more explicitly along those lines in the Mississippi case, you know, by the end of this term. Thank you for that. Well, soon after we finish recording this podcast, and by the time we the people listeners hear it, Uh, Merrick Garland is expected to announce that the federal government is filing a lawsuit uh, that argues that the Texas law illegally interferes with federal interests. None of us have seen the legal theories for the lawsuit, so you're speculating, but Sarah, um, take it away. What are potential legal theories that the federal government might use to sue Texas? Well, one obvious one to me was 18 USC 241. This is conspiracy to deprive someone of a constitutional right. Um, It's been used in in voting and and race cases a lot of the time. It seems really on point, right? This is uh, two or more persons conspire to injure, oppose, threaten, or intimidate any person uh, in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right secured to him or her by the Constitution of the United States. The problem is that you run into the same problem as they did the first time. Who are they suing? Is it the state legislature? Is it the governor who signed the law? Um, And of course, like, what's the conspiracy? Is it between the legislators and the governor? So you still have a problem. Um, I am very curious if Kate were at the Department of Justice right now, what she would be saying in that office of legal counsel room, uh, advising on all of those lists of things they have no doubt gone through of potential ways to get to this. Kate, what do you think? What might the legal theory be and how likely is it to get around the problems we've been discussing? Well, well, one possibility, and this is one that Attorney General Garland alluded to publicly, is it, there's a federal law called the FACE Act, which just is basically about protecting access to abortion clinics um, and you know prohibits threats and uses use of force to intimidate or interfere with people accessing clinics. Um, that's one possibility. Um, but of course, it would be a broad interpretation of the FACE statute to suggest that individuals who seek to invoke the jurisdiction of the Texas courts or to sue the Texas courts directly or to, or to sue the, the you know, Texas judges or other state officials directly under the FACE Act. So that I think is um, 
would be a fairly strained and difficult act of statutory interpretation, but there may be a way to sue particular defendants under the FACE Act, private parties. So that I think is a possibility. I think the reconstruction statutes, Sarah mentions 18 U.S.C. Section 241, there's also 242, um, that's criminal penalties attached to it. Um, the All Writs Act, right? Federal courts can issue certain orders necessary or appropriate in the aid of their respective jurisdictions seems like a possibility. Um, you know, look, I, I think it's right. Sarah's right that there is still going to be a problem in terms of who you sue, but there at least is a view that the public, that the sort of public enforcement when brought by the federal government um, encounters a lower obstacle uh, in terms of this kind of sovereign immunity um, issue than uh, private parties. So here, right, I'm not sure we've, we've even said this, but the plaintiffs are, you know, clinics and also individuals who counsel and provide spiritual guidance to women, you know, deciding what to do uh, when pregnant. And so it's, you know, these are private parties, but if we're talking about public enforcement, um, there may be a different analysis. And so DOJ may have concluded that it's got a lower hurdle to clear from the perspective of these kind of immunity doctrines. Um, and then there are other federal civil rights statutes that they could, um, you know, that they could potentially bring. So the federal government bringing a suit seems, I'm not sure if that's what Carlin is going to announce. I think that that very, certainly the federal government is hard at work thinking about it. Um, and, you know, we'll probably be scooped by the time this podcast is out. But um, but I do think that we will, I would imagine we'll see more than one legal theory laid out in whatever they announce and, and you know, probably quickly file. Thank you so much for that. Well, uh, we've been playing Hamlet without the Prince for this whole podcast by really digging in on the procedural question. So I, I'm going to end by asking, of course, the substantive question that, that all listeners are uh, eager to hear your thoughts about. Uh, Sarah, um, what does the disposition of this Texas case say about what it might do in the Mississippi case and substantively what kind of narrowing or overruling of Roe do you imagine the conservative justices might embrace? So let's back up because I think people throw around terms like Roe and Casey a lot. And it really bothers me when people keep talking about Roe as if everyone understands what it means. Uh, like, oh, the court's going to overturn Roe. Uh, and abortion's gone. Uh, so Roe was decided in 1973. That's the first time the court is going to say there is a definitive constitutional right for a woman to terminate a pregnancy. But they're going to set up all this reasoning around it of what the standards are to determine whether a restriction is legal or not, etc. It causes, as we all, I think, know now, a huge kerfuffle in society uh, that continues on through the 80s. And then in 1992, you have a case called Casey. Now, that's a case where the court actually struck down part of Pennsylvania's law, upheld parts of Pennsylvania's law, says explicitly that they're not overturning Roe, says it over and over and over again. We're not overturning Roe. And if someone keeps saying that, it means they absolutely were overturning Roe. Uh, they're right. They kept the essence of Roe, as in the constitutional right remained, but they totally changed the legal standard, created something called the undue burden test, um, and... It, when the rubber hit the road on that case, they struck down a Pennsylvania part of the law that said that uh, married women must have must inform their husbands of their uh, abortion, but it upheld uh, minors uh, getting parental consent, a 24-hour waiting period for women. So they were trying to sort of show the courts, look, an undue burden, it's kind of in the middle. Uh, and it was also very clearly only applied to pre-viability. All right, so... 
That didn't solve things at all. We've been arguing about what an undue burden is for 30 years. And like every few years, the court takes another abortion case, tries to resolve the question, and we still have no better idea. So in 2015, I mentioned earlier the Hellerstat case. That was a case out of Texas that would require abortion doctors to, for instance, have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Um, The court struck down that Texas law and then very shortly thereafter took up Louisiana's incredibly similar law and Chief Justice Roberts switched his vote. So in Texas, he voted to uphold the law, but in the Louisiana version, He said, well, nope, let's strike down the law like we did in Texas because we struck down the Texas one. We just have to be consistent even when justices on the court change. I I say all that to lead up to this Dobbs case, the 15-week abortion out of Mississippi, because the justices are approaching this from very different places. So you have some of the justices from that Texas case who wanted to uphold that Texas uh, admitting privileges law, uh, who clearly believe that undue burden standard is way lower than what it has become in the 30 years since Casey. But then you have the chief justice who clearly thinks uh, the institution of the court and consistency over time, it's sort of almost a Burkean concept that you don't make huge changes in the law. You make small incremental changes and you respect stare decisis whenever you can. Um, And he voted, of course, by the way, to issue this stay in the Texas bill. So that, I think, we saw where the chief justice is going to be on Dobbs. Very institutionalist, definitely upholding Casey. Um, Then the question becomes Kavanaugh and Barrett. We know where Alito and Thomas were between Texas and Louisiana. Justice Gorsuch is on the Louisiana case, though not the Texas case. Uh, So really, it's down to Kavanaugh and, and Barrett. And that's why everyone's trying to read the tea leaves in this uh, Texas SB8 stay. Now, again, we don't know who wrote this, but we do know that they signed on to that unsigned opinion. Um, Look, it doesn't say anything about the constitutionality. It says we're not going to say anything about the constitutionality. Maybe that's because the five justices didn't agree on that question. Maybe you do have Kavanaugh wanting to say this SB8 six-week ban is clearly unconstitutional under Casey, but Alito absolutely won't agree to that. And they don't want to have 50 little opinions out there. And so they agree to just not say anything about the constitutionality. That's one way to read those tea leaves. Um, Look, to cut to the punchline, though, the best prediction I have looking at all the justices and where they've been on this through the years is they will uphold the Mississippi 15-week ban on abortion, but say that it fits under the undue burden standard. That, yes, the undue burden standard is maybe different than you thought it was for the last 10 or so years. But actually, if you go back to the original opinion uh, from Justice O'Connor, it's actually one of those rare jointly authored opinions uh, that Casey is. If you go back to the jointly authored opinion and even what Justice O'Connor was saying about what an undue burden standard was at the time, that actually was always meant to be uh, you know, not as high as strict scrutiny or some of these really exacting standards. And the 15-week ban falls within that new understanding of Casey. So we're keeping Roe, such as it ever wasn't overturned in 1992. Casey, we're keeping totally. And it's actually going to read a lot like Casey. We're not overturning Casey. We're not overturning Casey. We're keeping the essence of Casey, but also the undue burden standard means something totally different than it did last year. Thank you so much for that. Kate, last word in this great discussion is to you. What do you think that the disposition of the Texas case says about what the court might do 
in the Mississippi case. And, and if the court does say that a 15-week ban is not inconsistent with an undue burden on abortion, what's the new undue burden standard look like? Well, just one quick qualifier to what Sarah said. Yes, it's true the court didn't say much in the Texas per curiam order about the constitutionality of the Texas law, but it didn't say nothing. It actually said that there are serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the Texas law. And that is just an, just an insane understatement, right? There are not serious questions about the constitutionality. The law is flagrantly unconstitutional. And so on my podcast, we've gone sort of, we went back and forth about that sentence actually for some time, um, actually to Sarah's point about the delay my theory is that they were wrestling with with that sentence, um, actually, uh, in the per curiam, and that's what they were sort of working out. Um, but it certainly does suggest that if all Kavanaugh and Barrett, who are really the you know votes who might be in play here, I think, believe can be said about the Texas law is that it raises serious constitutional questions, that doesn't give a lot of hope to individuals who I think want to see some substantive, you know, real version of constitutionally protected right to an abortion continue right in this country. Um, so I think it is probably, I think Sarah's probably right that the court will write something in the Mississippi case, Dobbs, that does not contain the sentence Roe and Casey are overturned. I think, you know, we will see an opinion that says they ought to be that has, you know, Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch join it. Um, I'm not sure who writes it, Thomas, Alito, maybe. Um, but I actually think that we could well see a fractured opinion in which you have like a Roberts, Kavanaugh, Barrett write something different that does purport to retain much of Casey. They couldn't possibly with a straight face say we are basically, you know, just you know, lightly reinterpreting, putting a new gloss on Casey. I mean, it would be a radical reinterpretation of Casey because Casey says very explicitly a ban cannot be, you know, a pre-viability ban is impermissible. So it, the undue burden test really is meant to apply to regulations of abortion that are not bans. A ban, I'm not sure, is even subject to an undue burden analysis. A ban is just unconstitutional. So to say, okay, so it'll be, it would be a pretty dramatic reinterpretation of Casey, but one in which I think they might, you know, try to sort of square the circle of not, you know, inviting, I think, the pretty intense political and public blowback from forthrightly just overturning those cases and changing, um, you know, constitutional abortion access and um, and yet allowing this Mississippi law to stand. So I, I, I think we will see something along those lines, although actually after this opinion in Texas, it seems to me more likely that the court will 5-4 actually just say that the Constitution doesn't actually protect a right to an abortion. They're being asked that question explicitly. This is the first time this newly constituted conservative court has the opportunity to answer that question squarely. Um, and I, I think it's certainly possible. I don't think it's the most likely outcome, but I wouldn't rule out the possibility that they seize that opportunity and that 5-4, they actually you know, overturn Roe and Casey. So I would say I think it's the less likely, but certainly possible uh, outcome in this case. You might say, this is, you know, this is our chance and we're going to take it. And I think the Texas proceedings, to me, sort of sent a message that that was more likely than I had previously believed. Thank you so much, Sarah Isker and Kate Shaw, for an illuminating, educational, and, and really clarifying discussion of the complicated and important procedural issues in the Texas abortion case. I now understand them much better, and I know that we the people, listeners do as well. So on the listeners' behalf, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by David Stotts. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Olivia Gross, and Lana Ulrich. Homework of the week, 
please read one of the lower court decisions we discussed. Our guest did such a good job at helping us unpack them, and the best way to understand them is to read them yourself. And please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional education, illumination, and debate. And always remember, friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of engaging thoughtful conversations and promoting constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount, a dollar, five dollars or more, to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.